Good afternoon. Please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5 as we continue to make our way through this great book. This wonderful vision we began last week in chapter 4. We get the glimpse of the Savior this week. Revelation 5. We'll read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 14. Let me remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea And all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our glorious triune Lord, we are so thankful and privileged to have your word and to have this incredible vision of who your son is. Lord, I pray that you would help us to attend to it. Open our eyes that we might see and understand your word. Give us soft hearts to repent quickly and to delight in the victory that your son has already accomplished and will continue to work in this world. Give us willing lives that will help us to Proclaim this gospel to the ends of the earth 
so that you may be glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are many, many blessings that can come from growing up in the church. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. But one of the biggest blessings, at least in my opinion, has to be learning good theology and precious Christian truths through song. I don't know about you, but some of the most simple and even like childlike songs that I learned as a kid that got stuck in my head have taught me some of the most profound truths and helpful things that I remember in my entire life. I think of trust and obey. This is my father's world. I know we sung that this morning. Love that song. Even silly ones like Father Abraham has many sons. I know some of you want to march probably hearing that if you're anything like me, but it's true. These songs are so simple, but so profound. They contain the gospel and an incredible picture of the gospel that helps us understand what our Lord has done. Now, there's one song in particular that has been in my head all week studying Revelation 5, and it actually popped in my head as Jason preached last week in Revelation 4. I learned it when I was a child, but it's Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. You know that song? I love this chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Brothers and sisters, there's no better advice for persevering in faith than that. For fighting sin and doubt and temptation and enduring and suffering, each of us must turn our eyes to Jesus. And we know why, because when we turn our eyes anywhere else, what are we left with? As Chad talked about this morning, we turn our eyes on the world, all we're left with is despair and sin. I don't know about you, but all week as I've been looking at the news, I've been thinking Psalm 2 is being played out right in front of us. As nations rage and plot in vain, kings and rulers set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. But sadly, if we turn inward, we don't find much more encouragement. At best, we find inconsistency, weak faith. At worst, we see remnants of the old man, a sinful flesh, an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God, as Paul says in Hebrews 3. Well, surely if we turn to the church, then we can find hope. John had us turn to the church in the first three chapters, didn't he? Those seven letters to the churches, we can see God at work, see God sanctifying his people, but we also see a lot to despair about, don't we? We also see a terrible mess in the church, weak, hurting sheep, unfaithful shepherds that refuse to call out false doctrine and teach the truth. We see division and weakness and persecution. I don't know about you, but when I look at the world, I am so tempted to think and ask, who's in charge of this mess? How can God be on his throne and this happen? What happened to this glorious Christian life, these incredible promises I read about? I don't see them coming true in my life and in the lives of people that I love and care for. And the only reason that thought comes to mind is because I'm not turning my eyes to Jesus. Because when we do, when we see his glory, especially in redemption and judgment as we see in this chapter, 
then the things of this world, the things that can grip our hearts and feed our fears and our doubts, the things that can lead us to despair, they actually do grow strangely dim, don't they? Overshadowed by the glory and the grace of Jesus. And that's what I want us to do today. This is kind of a weird sermon. I have only one application. I'm going to tell you up front. Turn your eyes to Jesus. That's it. That's what we're being called to do here. And God knew we needed to do this. He knew how desperately we needed to see Jesus in his glory. And so he gave John this vision so that we can turn our eyes to Jesus and see that. Now that began in chapter 4, right? Last week we got a glimpse of this heavenly worship. As John was pulling these images from Ezekiel and Daniel, and we see this stage where the Ancient of Days is being worshipped on his throne. And then in chapter 5, we have the Son of Man from Daniel 7 enter the scene. And we get to see His glory. And we find out that this Son of Man is the Lion and the Lamb. These two incredible images of Jesus. The Lion and the Lamb. The Lord of Judgment and the Lord of Redemption. And those two images are going to be worked out the entire rest of this book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ after all. We see his great work in judgment and redemption. So as we walk through this vision, as we walk through this kind of narrative, I'm going to point your attention to three things that will help us navigate our way through. The first is a scroll, a sealed scroll, verses 1 through 4. The second is a Savior, worthy Savior, verses 5 through 7. And then the third is a new song, new song, verses 8 through 14. So let's start with the sealed scroll in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Let me stop there for a second. I need to remind us one more time. We're going to keep doing this, but this is a vision. This is not meant to be taken literally. If it is, we already have a big problem with that first line, don't we? Because that is the right hand of the Father who is sitting on a throne. Father doesn't have a body like ours. Jesus has a body. But the Father doesn't have a body, so we can't take this literally. And if we continue to try to take it literally, we have a really big problem in a minute because we have a very strange barnyard animal coming up that describes Jesus. Lots of eyes and horns, lamb, lion. We can't do this. So I remind you once again, we're not meant to take this literally. Jason said last week, they're not snapshots of heaven. These are images. These are symbols that John has given us right out of the Old Testament that we interpret to draw meaning from to teach us about what we're seeing. And so this image is of the Ancient of Days from Daniel 7, holding something in his right hand as he rules on high. And what is he holding? Verse 1, a scroll. Written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, what's this scroll? What's this talking about? Well, the first way to think of this is this scroll is really God's plan of salvation through judgment. It's God's plan of redemption or salvation through judgment. And we'll see it played out in the next few chapters. But John is just drawing from images from Ezekiel 2 and 3 and Daniel 7 and Daniel 12. We don't have time to get into all those. But let me read you just part of Ezekiel to get an image of what this scroll is about. This is Ezekiel 2.8. God says, but you, son of man, that's Ezekiel, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house, that's Israel. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. 
Sound familiar? He spread it before me, and it had writing on front and back, just like Revelation 5. And there were written on it, listen, words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Those are words of judgment, aren't they? And he continues, he says, He said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. He said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach and listen. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. You think, well, wait a minute. That scroll contains judgment. How can the bitterness of judgment and lamentation and woe be considered sweet as honey? Well, because this judgment isn't just arbitrary. It's not random. God is bringing judgment to vindicate his people, to glorify his great name. He's bringing judgment to save his people from Satan's sin and death, and that's what is going on in this scroll. That's actually the good news about this scroll is it has writing on both sides. I know we see that and like, well, that's kind of weird, and it is weird. Most scrolls didn't have writing on the back. It wasn't protected. It was kind of hard to write on, but it has writing on both sides to symbolize the completeness of God's plan the perfection of God's plan. There's no gaps. There's no room for editing for God to say, oh gosh, didn't see that coming. I better go add that in. God doesn't do that. This scroll, this plan has every detail of human history included. Nothing needs to be added. No one is left out. Nothing is missed. And isn't this glorious news? There's no evil that will go unpunished. There's no wrong that will not be made right. As Paul says in Romans 8.28, for those who love God, all things, not some things, not most things, not even one day, all things, all things will be worked together for the good, for those who love God and for God's glory as well. So this scroll is that perfect plan for the care of God's people through judgment and redemption. But there's another layer to the scroll as well. And that comes with the courtroom imagery, the judgment, the seals. The, the strange part here is that not many documents were sealed like this. Almost none of them were sealed seven times. That's a picture of complete concealment. No one's getting in. No one's going to see it. But this scroll, having multiple seals, actually looks as if this is kind of a will. Like a last will and testament almost. As if this is concealing this covenantal inheritance intended for humanity. In Roman courts, documents that were sealed like this, they were sealed multiple times. You know why? So they wouldn't be tampered with. So that when someone would die, then the executor would come and he would be the one worthy to break these seals. To reveal the inheritance and distribute the blessing to all that deserved it. I hope you can see where we're going with this. After spending so much time in Genesis 1 through 3, God promised Adam a beautiful inheritance, didn't he? A beautiful blessing. If he obeyed, if he trusted him and kept that covenant, he would rule and reign over this world. He would be blessed by God forever, and so would all humanity. But Adam failed, and we have failed, and we've lost this glorious blessing, this glorious inheritance. And so in a sense, those, those covenantal blessings, this inheritance, has been sealed up, awaiting for the last Adam 
a man to represent humanity once again and to obey where the first Adam failed. History has been waiting for the executor to come and break these seals and reveal God's perfect plan of redemption and judgment. Remember this as we walk through Revelation. This scroll is a picture of judgment and redemption and inheritance. It it contains warnings and plans and promises of God, which can encourage us so much. I know we have this very negative view of Revelation. It's just scary and intimidating, but there's so much encouragement here, and we'll see that as it unfolds. The problem is we don't have anybody to open the scroll. Verse 2 says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven, no angel, in other words, Holy, but they're not human. No one on earth, human, but not holy. And no one under the earth, no one dead or alive, no one anywhere was able to open the scroll or to look into it. No one worthy to inherit these covenantal blessings, these covenantal promises, to reveal the plan of God, to carry out God's plan of redemption and judgment. And so John responds as I hope we would in this situation. He weeps. Verse 4, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Brothers and sisters, this is where our sin has left us. This is where we are in Adam. No end to suffering, no into injustice, war, no into sin or death, no peace with God, no forgiveness of sin. We are objects of God's wrath, dead in our trespasses and sin, condemned to hell and all of eternity, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, without hope and without God in the world. We should weep at that reality, but we should also take courage because that's not where the vision ends. The glorious vision continues as we see the worthy Savior. We've seen the sealed scroll. Let's see the worthy Savior in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, look, John, look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. John, this is glorious news. There is someone worthy. Someone can actually carry out God's plan. Now, what makes Jesus worthy? Why is Jesus the one that gets to do this? Well, we get a hint here. We see more, but we get a hint in these two images. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that's a messianic promise from all the way back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 49. If you remember, Jacob is giving out the blessing to his family at the end of his life. A lot of those blessings are kind of like curses. But when he gets to Judah, he says something incredible. In Genesis 49, he says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? And listen, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples." This lion from the tribe of Judah is this great Messiah, this conqueror, who would take up this scepter and would subdue God's enemies, who would wipe out God's enemies and rule in the place of God forever. 
But he's not just the line of the tribe of Judah. He's also the what? The root of David. This is another messianic image from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. You don't have to turn there. Let me read this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. And listen to this. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This root of David, he is a king. The king, the Davidic king that we were promised in 2 Samuel 7. He will come and reign as the lion. But this king would be filled with the Spirit. He would be wise and discerning. He would be the perfect judge. And so John sees and he hears really at this point the root of David. This line of Judah has come and it's in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. From the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, the perfect holy king filled with the Spirit. He's the one that's going to conquer. He's the fierce lion. And then when John looks to get a glimpse of this conquering warrior king, what does he see? Verse 6, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. A lamb. Just so you know, that's the opposite of lion. Lambs don't conquer anything. Lambs are the ones that are conquered, are subdued. How in the world can the lion from the tribe of Judah, this root of David, this king be a lamb. What in the world could a lamb conquer? Well, John helps us. Look at the next word here. He's the lamb who is what? Standing. As though he had been slain. Just in case you're wondering, slain animals don't stand. They don't do anything. They're dead. This lamb is standing, bearing the marks of death implying that this lamb rose from the dead. This lamb was resurrected. John is giving us a hint of what this lamb has conquered and how he has conquered. He took on death by giving his life. We see the end of verse 6. It gets even weirder and even more glorious in some ways. It says, this lamb has seven horns. That's a picture of perfect power and authority. That's what horns are a symbol of. It's perfect power and authority. Seven eyes. This picture of omniscience. Can see all and knows all. And John helps us interpret this here. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. When we talked about this in chapter 1, the seven spirits of God are not seven different spirits. It's one spirit, Holy Spirit, and the seven and the ends of the earth talk about the complete covering the earth that the Spirit has. The Spirit of God is everywhere, and the Spirit of God dwells in this slain lamb, perfect in power, perfect in authority, filled with the Spirit so that he can do what? Verse 7, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This lamb was able to approach the Ancient of Days, God Almighty. This is such a glorious picture of our Savior, isn't it? Almost paradoxical in the way. You feel that, don't you? 
You have the King of kings, the Lord of lords. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. But He's also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who is afflicted and oppressed, led like a lamb to the slaughter. He's also the Passover lamb who was slain so that His blood would protect His people from the wrath of God. We think, how can this be? Conquering does not come with death in our world. It's not the way things work. But this Messiah, this Savior, conquered through death. He won through defeat. He took on our greatest enemies of sin and death, and through His death, He brings life. I know we're so used to hearing that. We hear that often, but just stop and think how crazy that is. We worship a slaughtered conqueror, a lion who is the lamb. That just doesn't compute in our culture. And I think if we're honest, we have a hard time even coming to grips with that ourselves at times. I think we favor to be okay with the lamb part. We like someone that would lay down their life. We like Jesus, meek and mild, let the little children come to me, kind of Jesus is the best Sunday school teacher ever kind of image. But sometimes we want to dismiss the lion. Think, oh, my God isn't a God of wrath. My God isn't a God of judgment. But brothers and sisters, if we dismiss the lion and try to keep the lamb, we lose the gospel. We need the lamb to lay down his life to be our representative, but we need the lion to come in judgment. I'm sure if we lived in part of the world like Ukraine, where evil is right in front of our face, we would be praying for the Lamb even more. Maybe one good thing about seeing all this on TV will help us pray for the Lamb and the Lion to return and finish what He started. We've seen the sealed scroll and the worthy Savior. And let's look lastly at this new song. This new song. Verse 8. And when He had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now we see this scene and we're like, oh, of course, that makes sense. Falling down before him, these elders and these creatures, we look at this and think, of course, that makes sense. You realize what they're saying about this lion and lamb. He's not just a really good human king. He's not just a really wise human judge, a really good, noble man willing to lay down his life for his people. He receives worship. The same worship, by the way, that was just given to the Ancient of Days in chapter 4. This lion and this lamb is God incarnate. That's the incredible glory of this passage, that the Son of Man from Daniel 7 is God which makes him the perfect lion because he is holy. He is righteous. He's the perfect judge. It was against him that we have sinned in the first place. He's the only one that can give out that judgment. Also makes him the perfect lamb because he can offer a perfect sacrifice to pay an infinite debt. And so the heavens erupt in worship of the lion and the lamb because he is truly God and truly man. Exactly what we needed. The one worthy to complete 
the plan of God's redemption and judgment. And so the people respond with what? Verse 9. And they sang a new song. Why a new song? The old ones weren't good enough for you or something? What's going on? Why a new song here? Well, the idea here is that a new song is sung in the Old Testament really to praise God for some recent victory. We see it in Exodus 15. When Pharaoh's armies are destroyed, they're freed from Egypt, what does Moses do? He leads the people in a new song, commemorating God's judgment and God's salvation. The Psalms talk about new song. Isaiah as well, talking about a new song being sung to commemorate God's work of redemption especially. And this song is new as well, but what makes it new exactly? Look at the last chapter, very last verse, verse 11. They were singing songs already in heaven. In chapter 4, verse 11 says this. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now look at the new song, chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Jesus is not being praised here for his work in creation. He's being praised for his work in recreation, in redemption. That's what makes this song new. It's commemorating Christ's victory that he has overcome, past tense. He has done it. He is the one that succeeded for the first Adam failed. He's the lion and the lamb. He lived the life that we failed to live going to the cross, offering himself as the slain lamb of God to take away the sins of the world so that his sacrificial death can ransom people from every tribe and tongue and nation and do what? Turn us into a holy priesthood, a nation devoted to glorifying God as he promised in Exodus 19. This is God's perfect plan of redemption. Jesus is the one to make it happen. He's worthy to break these seals because he shed his own blood as the last Adam. He's worthy to bring God's plans of judgment and redemption to pass because he's God and he's man. And so all creation begins to join with this heavenly choir. Verse 11, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of Many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. That's John's way of saying, don't even try to count them. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This sevenfold praise, complete, perfect praise of this Savior, the slain lamb and the victorious lion being sung in heaven right now. And one day it will be sung to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, basically everywhere, saying, 
To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Brothers and sisters, this new song of redemption is what's being sung in heaven right now. Right now. Because Jesus has conquered. And we get the privilege of joining in this heavenly worship. It's not to the ends of the earth yet, but it will be. As every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so we, at this time, don't need to turn our eyes to this world. We turn our eyes to the Lamb and the Lion. We turn our eyes to Jesus, looking full in His glorious face, considering what He's done, trusting Him in faith. And not only will the things of this world grow strangely dim, we'll begin to sing this glorious song of heaven in the here and now which God will use to enable us to persevere in faith. So our calling now is to look to Jesus and to sing with the saints of heaven and earth. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful song and picture of who your son is. Oh, Lord, you are glorious. So much more than we can even put into words. Lord, we... Acknowledge your greatness, and I pray that our hearts would repent, would bow before you, would trust you, so that you may receive glory and praise and honor from our lips and our lives. Lord, enable us to glorify your great name and preach the gospel so that more will join this heavenly choir. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.